0: Again, that's Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word.
1: We've spent the last few Sundays looking at Paul's letter to to his spiritual son, his also traveling companion whom he has left behind in Crete, this island off the shores of Greece. Uh, His name is Titus. And Paul begins this letter to Titus talking about his life mission ever since he was rescued by Jesus, that his mission is to be sent to people, sent to the elect, he says, people who are are ready to be caught with the good news about Jesus, the salvation message. And so what I did is I gave you guys a visual of how Paul sort of envisioned a Christian mission. If I could sort of break it down in a visual form, and it included a pond, a fish, a rod, and a hook. And, and God has prepared fish who are ready to be caught into a relationship with God. And all they need is the hook. All they need is to find that hook, to have that hook in front of them. That hook is the gospel. All they need to do is hear the good news about Jesus, and they'll be ready to receive it. And as people are caught by the gospel more people, increasingly caught by the gospel, they gather together to worship in churches. And God calls men to step up and lead these churches primarily by teaching others how to fish. Right? So they're, they're caught people who catch other people. They're people who are caught by the gospel and then they catch others with the gospel and then teach others how to do the same thing. And that's what elders are primarily called to do and other leaders in the church called to do. Paul tells us that why leaders stepping up is so important in verse 10, which Janine read for us this morning. It's so important they step up because for there are many who are insubordinate, etc. In other words, Paul's giving the reason why it's so important to have strong leadership in the church, godly leadership, leaders who care about the good news about Jesus, because otherwise other people will step up and give other news that's not true about Jesus and spirituality and life. If leaders don't step up and lead with the gospel, other leaders will step up, using all kinds of lures, right, to to draw people away, to to lead people, to lure people away. So you've seen above you here a visual summary of Titus chapter 1. And the question before us today is, how did false leaders lure new Christians astray? By enticing them to think differently about their world. Just enticing to start to think differently about the world and the circumstances in which they live. And we can relate, right, that you can rarely change your circumstances. But you can change the way you think about them. You can change your thinking, right, your perspective, how you view what's happening in your life. A sick family member, a plummeting savings account. Someone who once liked you but is now sour towards you for some unknown reason you can't explain. Dozens of dumb decisions that you can't undo. These are all things that you can't necessarily change or change the consequences of, change the circumstances, but you can change your thinking about them. This is something that not only Paul knew in writing to Titus, but others caught onto this also. False teachers or false leaders. They were popping up in churches all over the place where the gospel had already reached Places like Galatia, Ephesus, and here in Crete, Titus' new home. So as new Christians begin to endure difficult circumstances, some teachers spoke out and lured with messages that made circumstances feel a little bit easier, a little less difficult to bear. There were messages that said, well, at least even when you go through hard things, even if people treat you badly, at least you can know you're in the right Or you can make a plan to limit your failure. Here's how you do it. Or here's a promise that you can make your life more comfortable by adding this onto the teaching about Jesus. Who wouldn't want to hear these things, right? Yes, we know Jesus. Yes, our life has changed. But as we endure difficult things, it would be nice to know that my circumstances can be eased, my troubles can go away, I can feel good about myself in the midst of it. Someone's view, you might be sour, but at least you can feel better than that other person, right? You can feel like you have the moral high ground. At least I'm not like them. I may have totally messed up my past, but at least I know now how to limit my failure, right? I I might be bleeding money, but God has a secret plan that if I lock into that plan, he can replenish all my money and make me prosperous. Who wouldn't want to believe in such things? And these were the messages That we're being passed around by false teachers, as we see in verses 10 through 16. And Paul concludes about all of these kinds of messages, all these false lures, that they are powerless. They are ultimately powerless. So if you look in the outline of your bulletin this morning, you'll notice two columns. See this right here? You'll notice two columns. On the left, we're going to move through the characteristics of false teaching. Not only here happening in Crete, but characteristics that usually happen in church cultures where you get false teaching and thus false thinking begins to develop in church members. And along the way, we're going to kind of contrast that from time to time with gospel thinking. So we're going to look at false thinking and then compare that with gospel thinking, thinking according to the good news about Jesus. And before I get started kind of moving through these columns, I want us to consider a couple things. First of all, I doubt that anyone in our church or, or your friend's church is intentionally trying to deceive you. Right? I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not, I don't believe that the, you know, the person sitting next to you might be full of lies. right? I'm, I'm not trying to like, spread rumors or make you feel like paranoid about anyone here at Sunrise. But that's usually not how false teaching spreads. In, in their wonderful book, this great book called Hidden Worldviews, Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford explain the most powerful worldviews are, quote, embedded deeply into cultures, even church cultures, so much so that we don't see them. They are worldviews hidden in plain sight. We are more likely to absorb them through cultural contact than we are through teaching. So these are things you overhear in casual conversations that are spiritual. Discussions of community groups, Christian music, Christian movies, Facebook quotes, or just something you heard on a sermon or in a clip on YouTube. Just little bits and like sponges that our mamas always wanted us to be, right? Be a sponge. Absorb everything. Absorb. You know, we wanted to be that. We do that in life. We well-intentionally absorb into, you know, intel until the pressures of life squeeze it out of us, and we show, oh, we really believe what we're hearing. We really believe what we've absorbed in cultures, even if it's not lining up with the truth of the gospel. And I say well-intentionally because the teaching we absorb can mention things like Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, grace, all of these things it can mention and still be false teaching. It can even include little bits of Scripture and still be false teaching. We see that in our passage in verse 16. Look at that. These people who are teaching false things, they profess to know God, which you can imagine that probably meant they were talking about Jesus, they were talking about the Holy Spirit, they were talking about grace, they were talking about all the things you're supposed to hear about, and think, oh, yes, yes, that's right, that's right. But they weren't real. It wasn't truth. So what we're going to learn this morning, false thinking is usually legalistic, self-serving, and ultimately powerless. It's legalistic, it's self-serving, ultimately it's powerless. So false thinking is first usually legalistic. Paul informs Titus and us who these false teachers are in verse 10. Read that with me if you would. There are many who are insubordinate, Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So in case Titus couldn't uh, sort of identify them by their careless attitude towards Paul's simple teaching about the good news of Jesus, if you couldn't identify them by their, their smooth but empty kind of speech, he gives him a clue how he knows. Here's how you can identify these false teachers. They're of the circumcision party. Now, I want to put about a quarter of our crowd at ease. It's okay to be circumcised, all right? It's not necessarily wrong to be circumcised. But these teachers were were of a Jewish heritage, and they taught that, you know what, guys? It's great that you trust in Jesus. It's fantastic you trust in Jesus, but if you really want to be accepted by God, if you really want to please him, what you really should do is trust Jesus, plus get circumcised, plus kind of become Jewish. That will make you really acceptable to God. And that is what legalism is. It, it's, it's trust in Jesus plus anything makes you fully acceptable to God, makes you fully accepted by God the Father. We're told in the gospel that there's only one requirement to know God forever, and that's to trust in Jesus. But what happens is, then you get this longer you're in church, and you're longer around Christians, is you start to hear, yeah, it's great that you trust Jesus, but if you really want to be a good Christian, also do this, and that will make you especially right with God. And it is not true. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Let me give you a couple examples of how legalism works itself out today. So say you're about town having a beverage with a friend. And a Christian says to you, hey, you know, for me, one beer is plenty. Or they just say, you know what, I don't drink. And the other Christian might say, hey, don't be so legalistic, man. You don't have to be so legalistic. But if by stopping at one or abstaining Entirely, the person thinks they're more accepted by God or they can earn extra credit with God, like God will be more pleased with me or won't judge me, then that is legalism. If, however, they just decide the best way for them personally to exercise self-control or the best way for them to just avoid addiction is to abstain from drinking, that is just a way to please God. That's just a way to respond to God for what he has done for them. I'll give you another example. You're on holiday. And your spouse or the companion you're traveling with says, hey, you know what? Uh, I want to find a place to go to church on Sunday. I want to go to, you know, find a place to worship with God's people. You might say to them, well, man, you don't have to. That's kind of legalistic, isn't it? Like you feel like you have to do something. It's not legalistic if your aim is just to grow closer to God. If your aim is just to experience more of the love of God with God's people as you sing to him and learn from God's word about him. To find a place, go for it. It is legalistic if you think, oh man, if I miss church, if I don't go on Sunday, God's going to be less happy with me. He's not going to count that on my scorecard for heaven. He's going to remember that. He's going to count it against me. That is legalism, and yet it's the way many people think about church and Christianity. And you can understand how attractive this teaching is. It's dressed in Christian language, but ultimately you are in control. You treat God like a holy vending machine, right? If you put in the effort, God produces the product, right? Grace, mercy, love, heaven, forever. As long as you put in your effort, put in your time, put in your talent, and God will produce his. But ultimately, who's in control, really? You are. And no matter what happens, you'll still feel good about yourself because you've done your part and limits good, but it also limits failure. Look at verse 15. Paul utters what seems to be a very wise, sort of almost Yoda-like statement. But my guess is few of us here would, would sort of understand it at a first glance. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, this is like the reverse of what we would think about what we would read in the Bible, of what we think of religion. We would think people would say, to the pure, they see a lot of things as being evil, Right? that's evil and that's wrong. And the way that person talks and the movies that person sees, that's wrong. But the people who aren't living for Jesus, they see everything as good. But that's not what Paul says, does he? He says to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Paul is referring to these same false teachers who, who've, and those who've bought into the legalism. Legalism makes a list of what is categorically good and categorically bad. And as long as you do the good things on the good list and avoid the bad things on the bad list, you limit your failure. And you start to feel, well, you know, kind of good about yourself. Like, I've done all the things I'm supposed to do today. I've avoided all the things I'm not supposed to do. And you feel good about your morality. The legalist, unfortunately, takes some of the best, the very best of what God has created, and they relegate it to the naughty list this is wrong, this is wrong, no matter what, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't do it. Nothing seems pure to them. A delicious multi-course meal lingering too long over a sunset on the beach or even all day at the beach. Enjoying making love to your spouse, puttering around the little garden you have in your backyard, relishing a rugby match of sevens or a good basketball game over a cold beverage, cheering like crazy for your child because you're just so into the game The legalist says, you know what, just in case, we're going to put those things in the excessive list, the naughty list. You just should kind of avoid that stuff. The best part about being a legalist, though, is you get to make up your own list. Like, you and your peer group are in control of managing your righteousness and thus your sense of moral superiority. If I do these things, me and my group of people, me and my clan, we're good with God. Me and all the people I know, These are the things we do. These are the things you shouldn't do. And you kind of end up making your own list. And you never have to feel bad about yourself if you're sticking to that list. It is a deadly teaching for the church, whereas gospel thinking is gracious. False thinking is legalistic. Gospel thinking is gracious. You're fully accepted by God, not because of anything you've done, but what Jesus has done on your behalf, living the life you couldn't live, and dying the death you deserve. I had a friend at a university. The guy was a little bit older than me, and we were having lunch one day. I got to know him through the English literature department. I was an English literature major, which is code for you won't have a job unless you're a professor or a pastor. But we, uh, I was talking with this guy over lunch one day, and he kind of leaned in. He's like, "I want to, I want to tell you something. I haven't really told anyone." He said. Uh, My professor, this professor who shall not be named, I still want to keep this private, (laughs) he's told me he's given me an A on this paper I got to write, which was like basically his major paper for this class. And he said, the, the professor came to him and said, I'm going to go ahead and give you an A. Just turn in whatever you want. But I'm going to give you an A ahead of time. Just turn it in. And the guy was telling me this. I was like, this is unbelievable. And the professor asked him to keep it secret. But ironically, this friend of mine wrote the best paper he ever wrote. The best paper he ever wrote. He said it was was amazing. He was completely free to think without limits, to explore without fear of time constraints. He could express himself freely without the fear of being judged. Why? Because he had already been given the A. Gospel thinking requires something similar about our approach to life. If you've trusted in Jesus, God has given you the A no matter what. He's already given you a grade, and it is an A. That means we can live freely in response. We can make decisions in light of the fact that Jesus loves and accepts you no matter what. That is a glorious truth and a freeing truth. Whereas legalism limits good, limits failure, the gospel thinking expands good with a freedom to fail. So where legalism says, we're going to limit good, but that way you can limit your failure. The gospel says, we're going to expand what is good. Jesus said, I'm going to expand your thinking on what is good, but also give you the freedom to fail. Because your destiny doesn't depend on your behavior. It doesn't depend on your obedience. So that's why he says there in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. There's so many things that are good if they're created by God. First Timothy 4, where Timothy was dealing with the same thing at Ephesus. He says that nothing is to be rejected. Everything created by God is good, and nothing to be is rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything God has created is good. You can enjoy all of it. You can enjoy the delicious multi-course meal, the lingering too long at a beach, enjoying your spouse, puttering around your garden, all those things you can enjoy. Because we can try things, risky things, bold things, and know that even if we fall flat on our faces, God still loves us, cares for us, and hasn't changed his grade for us. So gospel thinking is gracious. Here's what else we can learn, though, about false thinking as we move down our our column here. False thinking is usually self-serving. And it's self-serving on two fronts. It's self-serving for the teacher and self-serving for the recipient. These are self-servers who teach a self-serving message. Paul says in verse 11, they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. But also those who receive it are self-serving. Paul quotes the famous Cretan poet Epimenides in verse 12. And the words aren't necessarily kind. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These are consumers who do what is good for themselves. That's the culture they've grown up, and that's what they've experienced, and that's who they are. He goes on to say, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. What's interesting, he's not talking about the false teachers here. He's talking about those who have absorbed their message, who, like sponges, have said, yes, this sounds good. I like legalism. I like this idea that I can just tick a box, tick a box, tick a box, and then move on with my life and know that I'm accepted, by. I'm good with God, know that I'm morally superior to others. It just feels so good to know that. Paul is talking to those people. Now, this idea of self-serving is a difficult tension because the Bible, even Jesus himself, often motivates us by what is good for us, what is ultimately self-serving, right? So, for example, Matthew chapter 6, you might remember Jesus famously saying, do not store up, or sorry, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy What is he appealing there to? He's appealing to our selfishness. He's saying, don't just spend money on things here. Store up money in heaven. Spend money on kingdom things, and good things will await you. He's appealing to our self-centeredness and being gracious in doing so. And the Bible sometimes does this. So I've always had a hard time with this idea of like, but wait a minute, Jesus, you encouraged us to think of our own interests when it comes to salvation, when it comes to how we spend our money and these sorts of things. And last year, we were doing this series we all did together as a church called The Genius of Generosity, examining God's generosity towards us and how we're called to respond with generosity. And we were looking at Second Corinthians 8 and 9. And during that study, for me, a light bulb went off. A light bulb went off, and I read these verses in 2 Corinthians 9, 10, and 11. Read this with me. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, when God is gracious towards you, when God gives you, sort of in this analogy, wheat, that wheat is not to spend all on yourself, not to all consume just you and your family. It's to sow also. You sow some of those kernels so that you'll have more, so you can give more. And that way, God gets glory. God gives you. He's generous to you. You don't spend all of it. You don't use all of it on self. You sow some of it into others' lives. And so he gets more glory because more people are being affected by your generosity. And that was like a light bulb for me, that God enriching us is to give a seed necessary to further generosity with the result of thanksgiving to God. Any teaching that promises prosperity for prosperity's sake, prosperity is an end, comfort, ease of life, wealth. Any such teaching is false teaching. Let me say that again. Any teaching that promises prosperity for prosperity's sake is a false teaching. That God is generous to you just so you can have it, just so you can keep it, just so you can be blessed without blessing others. That is a self-serving teaching. You see that? Have any of you guys ever seen the uh, TV show The Office? Have you guys ever seen the TV show, The Office? And, and by the way, I know that there's two versions. I know that there's a British version, Ricky Gervais, etc. Uh, I'm going to specifically refer here to the U.S. version, okay? Uh, the U.S. version stars a boss of an office paper distribu- distribution company. And uh, this guy, Michael Scott, he's uh, an insecure <laughs> but slightly lovable buffoon. During one episode, he's trying to negotiate a conflict between two of his employees, and, and he busts out the HR manual and starts to read through it. And he just, he looks through every solution. There's five possible resolutions. And one of his employees, Angela, says, please just skip down to number five, win-win, the win-win resolution. He says, actually, no, that's not. That's not apparently the best resolution. The best resolution, it says here in number five, is win-win-win. Win-win-win is the best It says two parties win, and the boss gets praise for resolving the conflict. And, of course, this appeals greatly to Michael Scott. He's like, yes, how can we make this a win-win-win? And so he goes on from there. Gospel teaching, guys, true gospel teaching is win-win-win. The teacher who teaches it delights because they're passing on what God has done for them. The hearer benefits. He get to hear a message of salvation and growth in Christ. And God receives all the glory as a result, as that message spreads. It is a win-win-win. False teaching is a win-win only. False teaching is a win-win only. Let me give you some examples. After this message, we're going to take up an offering. And that's the right thing to do. God calls us to to give back. We're going to pass a plate for anyone who wants to give. Now, I could say, every week we pass around that, that plate. Guys, if you give to God, he will give back to you. Sometimes 30 60, 100 times what you've sown. He's going to do that for you. It's going to be a win for you. Of course it's going to be a win for you, right? You're you're giving with the thought that God will, like a vending machine, he'll automatically give back to me. It's a win for your pastors, right? Because your giving actually helps us live and provide for our families, right? So win-win. But does God receive any glory for that? No. Or I could exhort you as we've done many times to, to serve in the church, to be a part of the body of Christ, to exhort you. I could say something like, hey, please spend your time and talent serving, and one day, not only will God reward you, but I'm going to write you a nice PR letter, a permanent residency letter, and in that letter, I'm going to put all your hours, and it's going to be a win for you, because that's going to give you points to stay on island and live in paradise forever. Don't be scared. I will, I will do that if you want it, all right? But think about it. What if that was your motivation? Who's that a win for? It's a win for for us, for the pastors and elders. We need help. And we want to equip people for that help. It's a a win for you, right? Points for permanent residency. Rewards in heaven. Is that a win for God? No, of course not. But if we explain that, serve because Jesus has so served you. And, And as a response to how he has served you, serve others. Love others. And that's the great thing about gospel teaching. Gospel teaching is other-oriented. Everything we need for life and living isn't in here. You're not going to find it here. Unlike that unfortunate translation that says the kingdom of God is within you, which really should be translated among you, a lot of people believe every, like, the kingdom is in here. Everything I need is in here. Every resource. The Old Testament book of Zechariah was written over 500 years before the time of Christ. Puts it this way, in a really neat way. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Notice that I'm going to flow out a spirit of generosity and please for mercy when they look on me, when they look on him whom they have pierced. That's a prophetic utterance saying that when we look to the, on him who has been pierced, on Christ, when we look to him, that's when we have the grace and the power and the love flow in our lives that we can then give to others. That's when we get all the resources we need. So often we're looking for the inner fortitude, right? The self-discipline, the self-help. But instead, the gospel calls us to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That's not in here. It's when you look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus Christ crucified, we receive the strength then to die for others, die to self and care for others. When you look to Jesus for security, for identity, for provision, for acceptance, then you can be that for other people, right? It's hard to make other people feel accepted when you're wondering, I don't know if they accept me. Or it's hard to pass on the identity of Christ to others when you're wondering, man, the way they treat me determines my identity. But when you're secure in those things, when you know that Jesus has died to secure those things for you, then you can pass that on to others, and you can love others without reservation and selflessly. So gospel teaching is other-oriented. We're going to learn one more thing here this morning about false teaching, though, in the left column. False teaching, finally, is powerless. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God. False teachers, right? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In in, in the end, they become detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, these people who live by those lists we talked about, right? The good list, the naughty list. What's good, what's bad. They can't do all the good things they put on their list. Nor can they abstain from the bad things. That's why legalism, guys, has two inevitable endings. If you live by... The mantra that trust in Jesus is good, but I'm also going to do this other thing to make me feel even better about myself and even better about my relationship with God. That's gonna have one of two inevitable endings. Either you grow increasingly frustrated as you fall short of your lists of shoulds and should nots, to the point where you give up God altogether. You're like, I can't do this Christianity thing. And not realizing that you've got the Christianity thing all wrong. That's one possible ending. The other possible ending is worse you succeed at doing all the things on your list. You succeed and insufferably look down on others who can't achieve all the things you achieve. In other words, you become a judgmental person. Or you become a bitter person towards someone close to you who can't live up to all your expectations. You guys remember that book? It was also a play, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was, it was a famous book. If you, you may have seen the movie or play or whatever, but it was the first a famous book by Robert, Robert Louis Stevenson. And maybe you remember the basic premise. Dr. Jekyll has his drug, which turns him unconsciously into a murderous monster whose name is Mr. Hyde. When Dr. Jekyll finds that he is just as much Hyde as he is Jekyll, he recognizes that there's inner war within him. He wants to do good, but he finds that Mr. Hyde's still right there with him. And he doesn't know how to reconcile these things. But he begins through self-discipline, through working hard, through developing a list of shoulds and should nots. He starts to improve his life. He begins to rid of hide. He labors to be kind to others, to be charitable, especially towards those in need. And he makes such progress, he does it quietly, it seems like he has made this transformation. He's only, do- he's only Dr. Jekyll. And you get to this climax in the book. It's a climax that's sometimes overlooked. He's sitting on a park bench, and he says this, I reflected that I was finally like my neighbor's. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and a deadly shuddering. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy again. I was once more Edward Hyde. That's, guys, the dilemma of trying to be good on one's own. The moment you've noticed you've been self-sacrificial, charitable, the meek person you've always wanted to be, that subtle superiority rushes in, and you become someone you always wish to avoid. Judgmental, haughty. That springs, guys, from false thinking about who Jesus is and who you are in Christ. Gospel thinking is transformative. It absolutely transforms our life. The final scripture I want to read is... From the end of titus one of my favorite little verses titus 3 3 through 5. it says there if you want to flip to it that we too were once disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice being hated and hating one another when the kindness and love of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of righteous things we have done but because of his mercy paul is reminding titus That the gospel should inform how you think about everything and everyone. So when you encounter hostility, you draw upon that gospel truth that you were once God's enemy. You were once hostile to God. But now through what Jesus has done for you, you are accepted by him, reconciled. When you encounter foolishness and disobedience, you draw upon gospel truth of God's patience towards you. That you're not yet the person he's called you to be. You're a work in progress, but he's getting you there. When When someone seems deceived and hopelessly frustrating in your life. You can hold out hope for them, because you too were once deceived by all kinds of passions and pleasures. But then God's kindness and love appeared in Jesus. And you start to see how how if you think according to the gospel, it transforms you. So that's the message in a nutshell this morning. Gospel thinking may not change your circumstances, but it can change you. God may or may not restore that sick family member He may not fully replenish the plummeting savings account nor change someone's view of you that's now sour nor reverse the consequences of dozens of dumb decisions, but he can make you into a person who's patient, a person with poise, a person with this perspective to love when you otherwise could not. Let's pray. Jesus, when we hear your word about false teaching, it's easy to look at that and and read that and think that doesn't apply to me. I'm in a good church. I'm in a good situation. I, I love you, Jesus. I don't need to worry about all this weird stuff going on in a time in first century that doesn't really apply to me. But the reality is, Lord, this creeps into all these churches, all these church cultures, especially the false teaching of legalism. That idea that trust in Jesus plus something else will make me somehow more acceptable to you. That idea that limits the good things we're supposed to enjoy in life so we can kind of feel better about ourselves and not quite fail as much. God, please just prevent us from falling into those patterns of thinking and the way we approach life. Instead, replace that kind of thinking with thinking towards the gospel. Thinking about who we are in Christ. How gracious you've been to us. How you've given us all good things created by you to enjoy. How you've had us look not inside ourselves but outside of ourselves for salvation. Our salvation and our acceptance doesn't depend on our ups and downs during the day or how someone else treats us or how someone else feels about us. It depends completely on what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you. Help us use the gospel in our thinking and the way we look at life and the way we treat others and the way we deal with adversity and circumstances. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.